Today I'm going to tell you about two animals. One you might not have heard of, but the main topic of today's episode is an animal that you probably have heard of. I mean, it shares a name with one of the most well-known of the X-Men in the Marvel Universe, maybe most famously portrayed in movies by Hugh Jackman. If you're a college sports fan, you'll recognize it as the mascot for one of the schools in the Big Ten, the University of Michigan. And if you grew up in the 80s, like I did, you can't hear this animal's name without wanting to yell it like this. You know, Red Dawn, the movie where Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey don't dance. But other than a reputation for fierceness and strength, which makes for a good superhero name or a mascot, what do you really know about the actual animal Wolverine? I'm guessing probably not much. I know I didn't before I did the research for this episode. So let's learn more about the small-ish but mighty Wolverine. And his smaller cousin, the Fisher. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. There are a number of places, sports teams, and even a few bands that bear the Wolverine label. Michigan is sometimes called the Wolverine State despite the fact that prior to a confirmed sighting in 2004, wolverines have been absent from the state for nearly 200 years. Still, in addition to the University of Michigan wolverines, Michigan boasts a wolverine township, a wolverine hill, and in the early 20th century, a wolverine mine and a wolverine hotel. During the Civil War, General Custer's Michigan Brigade was known as the Wolverines. Michigan also at one time had a Detroit Wolverines Major League Baseball team, winners of the national championship in 1887, no less, and in 1928, the Detroit Wolverines NFL team. Several other sports teams around the globe, guns, ammunition, vehicles, both military and civilian, and even a professional wrestler are just a few things that have banked on the Wolverines' reputation for toughness. Wolverines also appear in the lore of many indigenous cultures. In many of these tales, Wolverine is depicted as a trickster, much like Coyote in other Native American stories. Wolverine is sometimes a companion to Wolf, creator of the world, and a thief, but generally an agent of cultural transformation. So what exactly is a Wolverine? Well, if a bear and a badger had a baby, the results would be a Wolverine. They're a mustelid. Remember mustelids? Badgers, black-footed ferrets, skunks, and otters are the mustelids I've talked about in previous episodes. Wolverines are the largest of the land-dwelling species of the mustelid family. Now, anatomically speaking, wolverines are fairly long and low to the ground, but not as low as other mustelids. Adults are about the size of a medium dog a body that's about two and a half to three and a half feet long, plus a six to ten inch tail. They stand just over a foot to a foot and a half tall at the shoulder and range in weight from 15 to 60 pounds. Males tend to be 10 to 15 percent larger and 30 to 40 percent heavier than females. Wolverines have strong legs, broad rounded heads, small eyes, and short rounded ears. They have relatively short limbs for their size 
and large five-toed paws that are covered in fur to help insulate them from the snow and ice that's prevalent in their habitat. Now these large feet also work like snowshoes, helping them walk on top of the snow, and they have long semi-retractable claws that can be up to four inches long. Combined with a plantigrade, or flat-footed posture, these claws help them climb steep cliffs, snow-covered peaks, and even up trees relatively easily, not to mention what they can potentially do to prey or when they're wielded in self-defense. A wolverine's fur is mostly dark brown. They have a pale buff patch or stripe on their flanks that crosses their rump at the base of their bushy tail. Some have a light silvery facial mask, and some also have prominent white patches on their throat or chest. A wolverine's fur is thick and oily, making it water and frost repellent, pretty handy when you live in cold, snowy places, and also a fact that didn't go unnoticed by hunters and trappers and made wolverine pelts a popular choice for lining coats and parkas in Arctic conditions. Now, wolverines are a northern hemisphere resident. On the eastern side of the globe, they're native to Scandinavia, along with the more northerly parts of Russia, China, and Mongolia. Now, in the age-old story that you've heard me say a number of times about a number of animals, trapping nearly eradicated wolverines by the early 1900s. Here in North America, most wolverines are found in isolated Arctic, boreal forest, and alpine regions of northern Canada and Alaska. In those areas, they actually number in the thousands, but we're also talking about a vast area of wilderness. In the lower 48 states, there are still isolated populations of wolverines in the high country of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Oregon, Washington State, and Utah. It's estimated that there are currently only about 300 wolverines total in the lower 48. But wolverines are solitary and wide-ranging. A male's range can cover hundreds of square miles. Wolverines in Utah are rarely seen. There have only been six confirmed sightings since 1979. The most recent sighting in Utah was a male that was captured and tagged in 2022, before being released back into the wild to hopefully provide biologists with data on the wolverine's range in the state. Individual wolverines have also occasionally been spotted in other remote areas, like California, Sierra, and Nevada mountains, and the southern Rocky Mountains of Colorado, but so far haven't, as far as anyone knows, established viable breeding populations. In fact, the last time wildlife officials confirmed a wolverine in Colorado was in June of 2009, when a male, who had been tagged with a radio collar in Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, known as M56, wandered south into Rocky Mountain National Park in the Collegiate Peaks area outside Leadville, becoming the first confirmed wolverine in Colorado since 1919. Now, M56 continued to roam, as wolverines tend to do, eventually reaching North Dakota in 2016, a trip of over 800 miles, where he was unfortunately shot by a rancher who claimed he was harassing his cows. For the record, M56 was also the first confirmed wolverine in North Dakota in well over a century. And wolverines, while opportunistic hunters who often punch above their weight class, are not known for taking down healthy adult cattle. But, well, humans.
The rancher in question posted a picture of the dead wolverine with the caption, quote, killed this here critter out tormenting the cows, unquote. Shoot first, identify critter later. Anyway, the real point to M56's story is that his visit to Colorado eventually helped prompt Colorado's Department of Parks and Wildlife in 2022 to begin considering a plan to reintroduce wolverines to the state. Now, I've actually had wolverines in the back of my mind as a possible episode for a while, but when they made the news recently, it kind of brought them to the front. Citing threats from climate change to their snowy mountain habitat, wolverines were recently listed as threatened in the lower 48 states under the Endangered Species Act. This listing gives the government a year to designate critical habitat where commercial activities will be restricted to help the wolverine population recover. Now, normally I don't get into name origins, but I find the wolverines kind of interesting. The scientific Latin name for wolverines is gulo gulo, which translates literally from Latin as glutton glutton. But are they gluttons? Well, not really. But it doesn't help their reputation that they tend to be energetic when they eat, especially in winter when food is scarce. So energetic eating habits aside, the most likely origin for this scientific name is kind of a mistranslation. One of the Norwegian names for wolverines translates as mountain cat, but this Norwegian word is very similar to the German word for glutton. So it's thought by the people who think about these types of things that it worked its way into the Germanic language that way. But from there, it just picked up steam. The Finnish and French names both translate to glutton, too. The Polish and Czech words translate as fat belly, and in Hungarian, it translates as gluttonous badger. Now, it gets a break from this reputation here in North America. In French-speaking Canada, wolverines are known as carcajou, which is a derivation of an indigenous word. The English word wolverine is thought to come from the word wolverine, which implies a little wolf. And aside from mountain cat, it's probably the most accurate of the bunch. So if they're not out hunting cattle and gorging themselves, what do wolverines eat? Well, wolverines are primarily scavengers. A majority of the wolverine's diet is carrion, especially in the winter and early spring, when it depends on carrion almost exclusively. Sometimes they find it themselves, or they might feed on a carcass left behind by another predator or predators, frequently wolf packs. Occasionally, they've been known to chase off other predators and steal their kill. Wolverines often follow wolf and lynx trails, assumedly with the intent of scavenging the remains of their kills. But this is dangerous business. Wolves, bears, mountain lions, and even golden eagles are capable of killing wolverines, especially young or inexperienced ones. But wolverines are also powerful and versatile hunters in their own right. Generally, wolverines prey on small to medium-sized mammals, which can include porcupines along with coyote and wolf pups. But on occasion, they've been known to kill adult deer, moose, elk, and bison, but usually only those that are sick, injured, or immobilized in some way, like by heavy snow. They supplement their diets with bird eggs, sometimes the birds themselves, insect larvae, roots, and berries. Wolverines are also known to cache food, especially when it's plentiful. This is especially important for females nursing young in the late winter and early spring when food is scarce. Now, like I mentioned earlier, wolverines have very large ranges and tend to roam quite far. 
Even in deep snow in alpine terrain, a wolverine can cover up to 20 miles a day. A male's range typically averages nearly 250 square miles, or just over 600 square kilometers, and wolverines in the Yellowstone region are known to have ranges twice that size. A single male's territory usually includes the ranges of several females. Females have smaller ranges, 50 to 100 square miles, or 130 to 260 square kilometers. Interestingly, wolverines somehow know not to occupy each other's territories. When young males reach sexual maturity around the age of two, they'll often wander hundreds of miles in search of unclaimed territory. But how they know that a large swath of remote mountain wilderness has been staked out by another wolverine is still kind of a mystery. I mean, sure, they have scent glands like other terrestrial mustelids that they can use to mark territory, but remember, we're talking about 250 square miles or more. Scent marking an area that size would be a full-time job, but somehow they do it, and it works for them. Now, when it comes to breeding, successful males form lifetime relationships with two or three females, which they visit occasionally, while less successful males may go without a mate. Wolverines are what are called induced ovulators, meaning that females don't ovulate on a cycle or go into estrus, but instead they ovulate in response to some external stimuli, like the act of mating. They also experience delayed implantation of the embryo, something I've talked about with other animals. Mating takes place in the summer, but the embryo doesn't implant until the winter. If food is scarce, females may not produce young that season at all. Gestation takes just four to six weeks, and litters of two to three young, called kits, are born in the spring. Kits develop rapidly and reach adult size by the time they're one year old. Fathers often visit their offspring until they're weaned at 10 weeks of age, and it's not unusual for kits who have reached six months old or more to connect with their fathers and travel with them for a period of time. And, as I mentioned earlier, kits reach sexual maturity at about the age of two and then disperse in search of territory of their own. Average lifespan for a wild wolverine is eight to ten years, but they can live 15 to 17 years in captivity. Okay, so I've kind of exhausted my wolverine information, so let me tell you about another member of the mustelid family, the fisher. While wolverines are the size of a medium dog, fishers are about the size of a domestic cat. Males are three and a half to four feet long from nose to tail and weigh between eight and 13 pounds. Females are smaller, two and a half to three feet long, and weigh four to six pounds. The tail accounts for about a foot to a foot and a half of the fisher's length. Like otters or black-footed ferrets, their bodies are long, thin, and low to the ground. Fishers have five toes on each foot with fully retractable claws. Their feet are relatively large, making it easier to move on top of snow. Their hind paws have coarse hairs that grow between the pads and the toes, giving them added traction when walking on slippery surfaces. A circular patch of hair in the central pad of their hind paw marks glands that give off a distinctive odor. These patches become enlarged during the breeding season, so it's likely that they serve to make a scent trail that allows fishers to find each other so they can mate. Fishers also have highly mobile ankle joints and can rotate their hind paw almost 180 degrees, which helps them maneuver well in trees and climb down trees head first. 
The fisher is actually one of only a few mammals that can descend trees head first. The fisher's fur changes with the seasons and differs slightly between the sexes. Males have coarser coats than females. In the early winter, their coats are dense and glossy, and color ranges from deep brown to black, although it appears to be much darker in the winter when contrasted against the snow. From the face to the shoulders, fur can look goldish or silver thanks to multicolored guard hairs. The underside of a fissure is almost completely brown, except for random patches of white or cream. In the summer, the color is much more variable and often considerably lighter. Fishers molt starting in the late summer, finishing by November or December. Now, fishers are forest dwellers, and even though they're excellent climbers, they spend much of their time on the forest floor. They prefer continuous old-growth forest, generally avoiding areas with less than 50% cover. Female fishers need moderately large trees for denning, so forests that have been heavily logged and have extensive second growth are usually unsuitable for their needs. Fishers also prefer forests where the forest floor has a large amount of coarse woody debris. In western forests, where fire regularly removes the understory debris, fishers gravitate towards riparian woodland habitat. They're widespread throughout the northern forests of North America. Fishers are found in the boreal and mixed deciduous conifer forest belt that runs across Canada from Nova Scotia in the east to the Pacific shore of British Columbia in the west and north to Alaska. They range as far south as the mountains of Oregon, and isolated populations occur in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California, throughout New England, in the Catskill Mountains of New York, and in the Appalachian Mountains of Pennsylvania, Maryland, West Virginia, and Virginia. Now, despite the name Fisher, they don't, in fact, eat fish. The name comes from the word Fitch, which is a European polecat a different mustelid that looks similar. But you know how the European settlers like to name new stuff after the stuff they were familiar with. Fishers are generalist predators, although their primary prey are snowshoe hares and porcupines. In fact, they're one of the few animals that regularly prey on these spiny rodents. Now, a popular misconception is that fishers flip the porcupine onto its back and then attack its belly, but this was identified as a misconception back in 1966. Observations have shown that fishers make repeated biting attacks to the porcupine's face, which, after 25 to 30 minutes, usually proves fatal to the unlucky thornpig. Like their wolverine cousins, fishers supplement their diet with insects, nuts, berries, and mushrooms. They're also not above scavenging carrion if it's available, but they're not as dependent on it as wolverines. Fishers are solitary hunters, so usually their choice of prey is limited by their size. But while it's uncommon, fishers sometimes channel their inner wolverine and kill larger animals, like wild turkeys, raccoons, fox, marten, mink, otter, bobcat, and Canada lynx. Raccoons and martens, martens are another mustelid, might be taken by fishers either in trees or on the ground, and usually there's either a good population of fishers or a good population of martens, but not both. Lynx and bobcats seem like a bold move for the smaller fisher, but researchers in Maine have documented about a dozen confirmed cases of fisher predation on Canada lynx, and several more suspected cases. 
Evidence indicates that the fissures involved in these kills attacked the lynx that were bedded down in snowstorms using a quick, powerful bite to the lynx's neck. There were signs of a struggle as the lynx tried to escape, broken branches, tufts of fur, and claw marks, but the struggle didn't appear to last very long. From 1999 to 2011, in northern Maine, predation was the leading cause of lynx mortality in the study area. There were 18 documented lynx deaths. 14 of those were at the paws and teeth of fishers. Also like their wolverine cousins, fishers are solitary, associating with other fishers only for mating. Home ranges are small, averaging just three square miles in the summer and expanding in the winter when food is more scarce, swelling to somewhere between five and eight square miles. And again, males and females will have overlapping territories. The breeding cycle of fishers is nearly a year-long event. Mating takes place in late March to early April, but implantation is delayed up to 10 months until February of the following year. Females den in a hollow tree, and after a 50-day gestation, the female gives birth to a litter of one to four kits. Now, just seven to 10 days after giving birth, the female enters estrus and the cycle starts all over again. Kits are born blind, helpless, and partially covered with fine hair. They begin to crawl at about three weeks, open their eyes at seven weeks, and start to climb at eight weeks. At 10 weeks old, they start to eat solid food, and when they reach about four months old, they start to get intolerant of their siblings. But that's okay because at five months old, their mother becomes intolerant of them and kicks them out. By the time they're a year old, they'll have established their own territories. Average lifespan for a fisher in the wild is about seven years. Now, do I even need to tell you that fishers were almost hunted and trapped into oblivion? Fishers have been trapped since the 1700s and were popular for their thick fur, especially their winter pelts, and were often used for scarves and neck pieces. Fishers are said to be fairly easy to trap, and that fact, combined with high values for their pelts, was a strong incentive for trappers. Between 1900 and 1940, fishers nearly went extinct in the southern part of their range thanks to unregulated hunting and habitat loss. They were extirpated in many northern U.S. states after 1930, but thankfully they were still abundant in Canada. Fishers gained full legal protection in 1934, and closed seasons, habitat recovery, and reintroductions have restored fishers to much of their original range. Trapping resumed in the United States after 1962 when populations had recovered sufficiently, but during the early 70s, the value of fisher pelts soared, leading to another population crash in 1976. After several more years of closed seasons, Fisher trapping reopened in 1979, but this time with a shortened season and restricted bag limits. The population has steadily increased since that time. And that's where we'll end today's episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to click on those buttons that say like and follow or subscribe. Leave me a comment too if you have one. It is, as always, totally free of charge. Some other ways to support the podcast Tell someone else about the podcast, or better yet, listen together. Everything's better with a friend. Check out our Patreon page and become a patron. Subscriptions start at the low, low price of just $5 a month. That's less than one of them fancy coffee drinks down at the Starbucks. And after three months, you get some cool merchandise. 
You can find all the information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and a great way to contact me if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. Christmas is coming, so check out our merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatchesfromtheforest. Dispatches from the Forest merchandise makes a great stocking stuffer. Lots of options there. I feel confident you'll find something you like or something somebody else will like. For additional content, check out Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. <coughs> 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 The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission. Mm -hmm.